Good morning. Good morning. Nice, crisp morning. That's the one thing about this time of year is even if you don't have time to have a cup of coffee or something before you leave the house, you can just step outside. And, and it was 43 degrees when I stepped out this morning to come here, and, and that's, uh, that's just about right. Any colder, it'd be cold, but that can certainly snap you awake as soon as you step out. We're glad to have you here today joining us, uh, both online and also those of you that are here. We are continuing the series of messages where we're dealing with the miracles, the seven miracles that are found in the Gospel of John, and we're ready for number five today, which is kind of a fun one because uh, this is the one where Jesus is walking on the water. And uh, there, there, there's something cool about that. Even, even before I knew there was any story in the Bible of Jesus walking on the water, I remember as a kid thinking how cool it would be to be able to walk on the water. And in fact, I thought about it whenever I would lose a lure to a tree branch and my line would break and I wanted to get out there, uh, but I didn't want to swim out there. I would wanted just to walk on the water. But uh, yeah, this is a little bit different, though, this situation that we've got in front of us. Most of the disciples, well, not, not most of them, but several of the disciples were fishermen by trade. And so they spent a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee. They didn't do any fishing in the Dead Sea for a very good reason. There's no fish in the Dead Sea. The salt content of the Dead Sea is like tenfold what it is in the ocean. Uh, and so nothing can live there. Plants don't grow, you know, in the water. There's no fish or any of that. But the Sea of Galilee is very different. It's booming with life. Um, and, and that's where several of the disciples, you know, lived for quite a stretch of time making a living. Uh, fishing. They knew the Sea of Galilee. They knew the hot spots, you know, to go to. They knew some of the weather patterns. They knew how to navigate a, what we would consider a relatively small boat, you know, a fishing boat out uh, in, in the waters of the Sea of Galilee. But in spite of all of that, more than once we see them out there battling a storm where their lives are threatened. And you'll understand more of why that is here in a couple of minutes. One of the times that they were battling a storm, Jesus, as you might recall, was sleeping on a cushion in the boat, and they needed to wake Jesus up, and Jesus got up, and be still, and the waters calmed down. That's not the occasion that we're looking at today. That was a different time. Today, we're looking at the other occasion that is recorded in three of the Gospels. I'm going to be reading to you from John's gospel, and so it's in those verses, and I'll read that here in a few moments. But it's also found in Matthew chapter 14 and in Mark chapter 6. And just putting a plug in for this, not in regards to only this series, but in regards to your own Bible understanding and Bible study, is that when you're reading in the Gospels, like a parable of Jesus or a miracle or some other event, it's always beneficial to read the other Gospel accounts of that as well. You know, certain things are only recorded in one or two other Gospels. Sometimes you'll run across something that's not found in any of the other Gospels, 
But like this one that we're talking about today, it's found in two of the other Gospels. And what you're going to end up picking up on are some elements that aren't recorded in one of them, but they are recorded in one of the other accounts. So I guess you could describe that as being variations, you know, to the story. But we shouldn't be alarmed by that in thinking that, okay, well, there must be errors in the Bible then if one gospel has it one way and another gospel has it another way. No, no. In fact, it's, it's not the grounds upon which a critic might take it and say, whoa, look, there's a contradiction. There's an error. Rather, it serves just the opposite purpose. It, it affirms the reliability of the biblical account. Let me illustrate. The intersection out here at Johnson Drive and Renner Road. Back when we first got this piece of property, uh, there was no stoplights there. In fact, for years, there were no stoplights there. But eventually, uh, some of the folks in City Hall um, called a meeting and asked if they'd come by and talk to me because this was a regular thing that had to do with property owners of, of property that butted up next to where they were wanting to put a stoplight. Uh, they explained to me that that the reason they were looking at putting a stoplight out there is because at that time, that previous year or two, that intersection was the second most dangerous intersection in all of Shawnee. And I'm talking about fatalities. You know, people would die in the accidents that would happen out there because if any of you have noticed, and maybe you haven't because of the stoplights, but if you're heading south on Renner Road, and a car is coming east, coming from the west, there's kind of a hill there, and you don't see it very well initially. Sometimes you wouldn't see it until you're partway out in the intersection. And that's what the problem was, is that people and motorcycles and bicyclists, and, but cars as well, you know, would, would get, get uh, smashed right in the side, and sometimes people would die as a result of that. So let's think back to a number of years ago when there wasn't a stoplight there. Had you been at one of the corners of the intersection, and let's say two other people in here were at other corners of that intersection, and there was an accident there where there was a fatality. Well, the police obviously would be wanting to get reports from each one of you that witnessed that. They would want to be very thorough about the information there. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't um, interview you as a group. They would take you separately and get an account. And what they would end up discovering is that there would be some variations in the way you tell the story. Because there would be certain elements of what happened that maybe from your angle and what really stood out to you, boy, you really locked on to that. And maybe you didn't lock on to another aspect of what it is that just happened. But somebody on the other side of the street would have been looking at it. And that's the thing that they would have noticed. That doesn't mean that the stories would be contradictory. It just, it just means that it's three different individuals telling it from their perspective of what they witnessed. And that's kind of what we have here in the Gospels. And so, yeah, there's a few differences that are found, but the differences add to the legitimacy of what it is that 
is being talked about. So I say that because I'm going to, from time to time in today's message, be saying one of the other Gospels says it this way. And so that you can get a fuller picture of this particular occasion when Jesus was walking on the water. All right, let me go ahead and read those verses. Starting in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now let me explain a couple things about the Sea of Galilee, because this will be beneficial in understanding a bit. Uh, uh, why what was happening was happening. Two things. One, the Sea of Galilee is more like a lake than it is a sea. When we hear the phrase Sea of Galilee, if you're like me, you know, and I think back years ago, how that registered in my mind is I thought about, okay, it's ocean-like. Not as big as an ocean, but it's pretty big because it's a sea. But the reality of the matter is, this Sea of Galilee is more like a lake. From north to south, it's 13 miles. From east to west, and here's, here's a picture from one angle of the Sea of Galilee. From east to west, it's seven and a half miles across at the widest spot. So those kind of dimensions aren't typically what we think about when we think about a sea. As a matter of fact, if you were somehow to uproot the Sea of Galilee and plan it over here in the United States, it would end up being the 80th largest lake in the 50 states. 80th. That means there's 79 other lakes that would be bigger than the Sea of Galilee. So that kind of, at least for me, that kind of frames it in a, a perspective that's a little different than what I would have initially had. The other thing, which is as important and perhaps even more important, isn't so much the size, but it's the geography of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet, at least 600, and by some, some of the reports I read said it's closer to 700 feet below sea level, which is interesting in and of itself. It's a body of water, and it's that far below sea level. It's not the lowest um, body of water below sea level. You go down south of the Sea of Galilee, and you come to the Dead Sea, and it is twice as much below sea level. It's like 1,400 feet below sea level. Okay, so there's a very unique aspect to the Sea of Galilee, along with, obviously, the Dead Sea. It's, the Sea of Galilee is surrounded, and you can see it some in this picture, uh, by mountains. Maybe not necessarily Rocky Mountain kind of mountains, but it's surrounded by mountains. And so what it creates then is this tendency for air to come rushing over the mountains. The air is cooled 
because of the elevation. But then, like a funnel, it's brought down onto the Sea of Galilee, and that is what kicks up the, the, the likelihood of some of these spontaneous, uh, seemingly spontaneous storms that take place on the sea. Okay, so that can go a long way in helping give some insight into why seasoned fishermen can kind of almost get caught by surprise, off guard, you know, by the storm. It's just one of the dynamics of, of this particular body of water. So here's the scene. Jesus is not in the boat. That's the other story. Jesus, he's, he's somewhere else, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. The disciples are the ones that are in the boat, and they are right at three to three and a half miles out into the water. Other gospels say uh, that they are in the middle. Specifically, they mention that they are in the middle of the sea. All right? So that's, that's where they're at location-wise. It's about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. They got to start before nightfall. So they've been at this for quite a while. They've been out there trying to get across the sea. The distance that they were trying to travel in getting across the Sea of Galilee should have been something they, they could have done within about two hours or less. But uh, much more time than that has passed. And it's because of the wind. It says in verse 18, there was a strong wind and the waters were rough. That's the way it reads in John's gospel. One of the other gospels says they were buffeted by the waves. The other one says they were straining at the oars. So here they are. They're in this boat. They set out before nightfall. They've now been trying to get across some six, seven, perhaps even eight hours. They've been at this. And where are they at? Halfway. They should have been a whole lot further than that. But you see, they're, 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 not, they're not making any ground, you know, as they get out there because of the wind, the storm, their situation isn't improving any. But where is Jesus? Well, the scripture tells us that Jesus is praying. And Kirk drew reference to this last week that, uh, um, that Jesus went up on one of the mountains to spend some time in prayer. You see that in Matthew's gospel, it's saying that. And in Mark's gospel, it pretty much says the same thing. It had been a long day. Jesus had gotten word about his friend, John the Baptist, who was a cousin of Jesus's, that he had been executed, and um, which would have really been a blow on an emotional level to Jesus. Uh, and on top of that, Jesus had a lot of people that were pressing him, and he spent considerable time teaching them. And then, you know, what Kurt talked about last week, the feeding of the multitude, all of that has taken place. And so Jesus just kind of wants some alone time. And so he sends the disciples, you know, to cross the sea. He'll come, he'll, he'll catch up later, and he goes up on the mountain to pray. Now, here is a very significant part of the way this is all playing out. Though they are halfway across the Sea of Galilee, three, three and a half miles out there, and Jesus is up on a mountain, he's spending time in prayer, Jesus sees them. I mean, he sees them. He sees what's going on. 
It says in Mark's gospel, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. So the fact of the matter is Jesus is fully aware uh, what was happening to them was not escaping his notice. And this is one of the takeaways from this passage I want to make sure we get because I, I, think, I think it's a very significant point. And, and it touches our lives right where we live. And so we need to latch on to this. And that is that Jesus is not blind to our struggles. Whatever the struggle might be that we're going through in our life. He is not blind to it. He was not blind to the struggle that these guys had been uh, battling with for hours. One of the biggest differences between these two stories is one of them, Jesus was in the boat. The other one, Jesus wasn't in the boat with them. And so probably on this occasion, in the middle of their fear, in the middle of their exhaustion, they're frustrated on top of it. We don't have direct statements that they're saying in any of the accounts, but, but the likelihood is they're at least thinking and probably saying some things like, where's Jesus when we need him? Why did he send us out here to begin with? I bet he has no clue what it is we're going through right now. These were probably things that at least were going around in their mind. But the thing is, he did know. And that's what the account tells us, Mark's gospel spe specifically. He did know. The disciples couldn't see Jesus, but the good news was that Jesus could see the disciples. And let's latch on to that. We did a series of messages not that long ago where we were focusing on the names of God, and we, we covered several of the names of God that are used in Scripture, uh, but uh, that was not an exhaustive attempt of covering the names of God. There were several that we didn't touch on. One of them that we didn't touch on is this one uh, down in the bottom left. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. It looks simple enough, but uh, when I tried to Google that and how that would be pronounced in Hebrew, uh, even though I heard it like five or six times, I couldn't duplicate, you know, the way. So I'd butcher it any way I try to say it. But the occasion here in Genesis chapter 16 is that this is when Hagar was pregnant with Abraham's child. Eventually she will give birth to him and his name will be Ishmael. You might remember how that all came to pass because about three months ago I gave a message that was focused in on this is that God had given Abraham a promise that that even in his old age he would have a son and that son you know from that son um, Abraham's descendants would be so numerous they would outnumber the stars I mean, there would be so many of them and uh, and so Abraham though he was an old man usually considered beyond childbearing years. His wife wasn't too far behind him. You know, they took God at his word, but a number of years passed and they never had any kids. And, uh, and so Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Abraham, they kind of come up with a plan of how to help God fulfill his promise. And that plan involved Sarah's servant girl, her name being Hagar, that she through Abraham, would bear a child, and then Abraham and Sarah would claim this child as God's fulfillment of his promise. So they were trying to help God out on being good on his promise. God didn't need that help, 
but uh, for whatever reason, they felt that, the, that, that God did need it. And so they went about doing that. And you can just imagine, I mean, try to play that out in your mind, what the dynamics were that you could have predicted that would happen. Once Hagar becomes pregnant, there is tension that starts developing between Hagar and Sarah. You could have predicted that a mile away. And in fact, uh, Sarah starts treating Hagar harshly, and Hagar just, she's still pregnant, but she just can't take it anymore, and so she flees, and she goes out into the wilderness, and she sits down by a spring, and she's probably just trying to think, what's going to become of me? You know, am I just going to die out here? Where am I going to go? I have nowhere to go. And it's at that time the Lord appears to her and speaks to her. And, and this is what we read, Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. So she called the Lord who spoke to her, the God who sees. For she said, in this place, have I actually seen the one who sees me? So she gives this name to God, which is one of the names of God that you will find as you go through the Old Testament. The God who sees, the God who sees me. And, and the reality of the matter is that's so much a part of this story. Jesus is helping to demonstrate, to show that indeed God sees us when we're in the middle of whatever kind of a struggle. Nothing escapes God's notice. We need to keep this in the forefront of our minds because sooner or later we're all going to find ourselves up against it sometime. We're going to find ourselves in the middle of a struggle where we can't remember which way is up. We don't know how much more of this can, we can take. We feel like we're at the end of our rope. You know, all those cliches you know, that describe where so many people have been in their lives. And some of you might be there right now. Sooner or later, all of us will encounter moments like that. It might be when you find yourself at home after a divorce and you're alone. And you're struggling with a level of loneliness you haven't felt in a long time. And you're beginning to think that even your friends and stuff, nobody appreciates what it is that you're going through. God is totally aware. God cares. God sees what's happening in your life. It may be for some of you that have been married, you know, for many years, you've You've celebrated a 25th silver anniversary or a 30th or a 40th or even a 50th anniversary or, or beyond that. And then the time came that your partner died. And so now here you are for the first time in decades without this person who was so much a part of who you were, so much a part of your life. And your house feels empty, totally empty. And all the times, that, like you sit in the living room and you see something maybe on TV and you turn and you're reminded they're not there anymore. Their chair is sitting there empty. And you're reminded of that and you feel the weight of that on an emotional level. That can be a huge weight. And sometimes you can think everybody else's lives are just going on like normal. And people don't appreciate, they don't understand what I'm experiencing right now. Well, the reality of the matter is someone does know. They're totally aware. They see it. The God who sees. Or maybe you're in a hospital room and you're about ready to go into a major surgery early in the morning. And it's one that's already got you pretty nervous. 
you know, and, and, but you're thinking everyone else's lives is going on like normal. So many of your friends and relatives and everybody, tomorrow morning they'll go to work like normal. It would just be another day. But for you, you have no clue exactly what tomorrow holds. And, and it's really unnerving. Yeah, you know, I, I remember finding myself in, in that position as January 5th turned to January 6th a number of years back. You know, as I was getting ready to have my chest opened to have something that a CAT scan picked up on that was about that big removed from the center of my chest. I had already had cancer twice. But now I was going through this thing where I just couldn't breathe for me to step down from here, down those steps, and even sit in the front row. I would have, at that time, I would have been so out of breath, my clothes would have been drenched because I'd be sweating. It was so hard to breathe with any effort at all. And I had been in the hospital for two or three weeks, and, and, uh, and we basically pled with uh, the doctors and all when the plan and the CAT scans and everything showed what they showed, that, that we could get out for Christmas. And they're like, well, that, that's not normally something we would do for someone in your condition. But they, they finally agreed to allow us. We were in Iowa City to come down here to northeast Kansas to spend some time with Clutch folks and, and to spend some time with my folks. And as long as we didn't go back to Illinois, we had to go back to Iowa City. That was the agreement. And I went back and was admitted in the hospital. And here I am late on January 5th getting ready to have this huge surgery the next morning, which, you know, I and others were thinking, boy, this could be round three with cancer. And, and I was in a high observation room with a glass wall on one side and a couple of the panels were slid open. And, and then Colette left and went to wherever she was sleeping at. And it was real late at night, around midnight or something or other. And all of a sudden, the guy next door flatlines. And so they're barking out all these orders. Nurses and doctors are rushing in there. Equipment's being rolled in there. And, and a few of the interns and nurses are standing in the hallway looking in. So I couldn't see what was happening in the other room, but I could see their faces. And I saw when their faces started dropping. I saw as one by one people walked out of that room, some of them pushing equipment. Nobody was smiling. And finally, a doctor walked out, and he immediately turned and looked over his left shoulder and saw me, probably with eyes like this, staring right at him in my hospital bed. And, and uh, he immediately got a couple people to close the curtain and, and close that glass wall. But, you know, here I am, and I'm a person of faith at that particular point in time. But you talk about something that rattles you as you're getting ready in just a handful of hours the agreement or the understanding was I was going to have like a 6 or 6.30 surgery in the morning. So I knew it was only in about five, five and a half hours they were going to be coming and taking me, you know, to have that surgery. And boy, that was unnerving. You know, in, in your mind, you have all kinds of thoughts going through that nobody is aware of what I'm experiencing right now. Um, but the reality of the matter is the Bible teaches it, and it teaches it over and over and over again. And that is that God is the God who sees. He is aware. Jesus knew full well what these guys were going through when they were out there in the middle of the sea. Even though they didn't see him, he saw them. 
He was totally aware of it. You see, but it's in moments like that that we can be like David. On one occasion, David wrote this, says, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Because emotionally, that's the way it feels. And some of you have been there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But on another occasion, David wrote this, Psalm 139. How precious are your thoughts concerning me, O God. How vast is the number they are. If I try to count them, they would be more, there would be more of them than there are grains of sand. And that's David's way of saying, God, I understand. I'm always on your mind. You're always thinking of me. But you see, at some moments in his life, that's, that was his frame of mind. At other times, he felt the other way that's found in Psalm 10. The reality is God is a God who cares. Peter reminds us of that in his first letter that he wrote, that we are to cast our anxiety on him because he cares for us. There may be someone that is listening right now, whether you're listening from home and you're listening online, or there may be someone that is in this room here this morning, and, and you are struggling with these thoughts right now. And you need to hear that God sees you. And he's totally aware of what it is that you're going through in your life. He has not forgotten you and whatever kind of struggle you might be in the midst of. Just like in our text, he sees us in our struggles, even though we may not be able to always see him clearly. And did you catch what was said in verse 20 of our account in the Gospel of John? When Jesus was standing on the water and the disciples were scared, Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid. This is one of the occasions where Jesus, the, those first three words, it is I, he's basically just saying, I am. No need to fear. I am. Which ought to give you flashbacks of the burning bush when God was talking to Moses. And Jesus, this is one of the I am statements. There's multiple ones of them in the Gospel of John. You know, signifying uh, in part the deity of Christ. So that's one thing I want you to understand. Is that even though in the middle of a struggle, you may feel like you're all alone. And everybody's forgotten about you and their lives just continue on as normal. God is a God who sees. He's totally aware of what it is you're going through. The other thing that I want you to get in this passage that you don't necessarily fully appreciate just when you read one account, especially John's account, is this. Faith involves focus. It's, I think it's a major teaching point that is found in this particular miracle. You remember Matthew's account. Maybe you didn't know which one of the Gospels contained this, but you did know that this happened. Here, here we read, starting in verse 27 of Matthew 14. It says, But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. 
Yeah, this is the time that, that Peter is walking on the water. Now, before I say anything that may come across critical of Peter, let me say something that I, I think is positive and encouraging about Peter. Peter got out of the boat. All the other disciples, where were they? They were still in the boat. They were still white-knuckled, holding on to whatever it is that they were holding on to, fearful that they were going to be swept overboard. But Peter intentionally stepped out of the boat. We don't know how many steps he took. He may have only taken one or two steps. Maybe he took four or five steps. We don't know because Scripture doesn't give us those kind of specifics. But what we do know is that he had enough faith to step out in the middle of the storm, in spite of everything that was happening. So let's give some credit where credit is due in regards to Peter and what we're reading about him. However, that passage continues, verse 30, goes on to say, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? It specifically says that he saw the wind. I'm sure that's a reference to the effects of the wind, the, the water and the spray of the water in his face and, and all of that. But he saw the wind. You know what that means, though, when it says that. He saw the wind. Is that he's not keeping his focus on Jesus anymore. Now he's looking elsewhere. Maybe the other disciples and, and looking at their clothes blowing in the wind and how they're hanging on for dear life. And, and like I said, the spray of water. And, but his attention is elsewhere. It's not on Jesus. And so he starts to sink. When he saw the effects of the wind, his fear only grew. And the next thing you knew, he is sinking. And he's crying out for help as he's sinking. Listen, there is something here that is so much a part of human nature that we need to reflect on this because the reality of the matter is um, I'm not picking on Peter because I, if I knew all the details of your life, I could have picked on any one of us in this room because I think we've all done what we're reading about here. When adversity comes into a person's life, and adverse, adversity always comes uninvited. When adversity comes, invades a person's life, hardship, troubles, you know, what, however you want to describe them, we tend to focus on them. We tend to talk about them. You know, we start talking to other people that live in our house with us. We start talking to coworkers about it or best friends about it. We tend to dwell on them to the extent that some of the adversities that invade our lives, the last thought on our mind when we drift off to sleep at night is we're thinking about the difficulty that we're struggling with right now. And what's one of the first thoughts you have when you wake up in the morning? You might initially have that thought of, oh, that was restful, or that wasn't restful, or oh, my back aches. I mean, that might be the very first thought you have, but then in just a matter of a second and a half, all of a sudden, whatever that diversity is, comes right back into your mind. That's our tendency. That, that part of human nature, it seems, is that, that we do that to the exclusion of pretty much everything else. 
It becomes our focal point. And when we do that, we start being consumed by fear. When you focus on adversity and struggles and adverse circumstances in your life, it, it will cause fear to be on the increase. Because what we're doing is we're feeding our fears. And when you feed fears, fears get stronger and stronger as time goes on to the point that you're overwhelmed. When you focus on the storms in your life that are going on, the troubling circumstances that you and your family maybe you're right in the middle of right now, little by little, the world becomes basically a terrifying place to live. I mean, let's put some specifics to this. Let's talk about the economy. I mean, we're hearing a lot of talk right now about the economy. We're hearing stuff about the price of food. It's rather obvious, the price of gas. I don't know if you do the shopping in your family, but, uh, or if you ever look at your bank accounts to see, you know, in regards to whoever is doing the shopping, the price of the food compared to what they were doing just a few months ago, it has definitely changed. You might have been used to making a trip, and uh, however frequently you made a trip to, to the grocery store, and you may be used to have been coming out with like an $80 bill or $90 that you would pay on that trip. Nowadays, you're paying $140, and you're basically coming out with the same amount of food as what you did before. You know, and, and that can be unsettling, Right? Because you don't know that it's even leveled off. Maybe it's going to continue to increase. And we hear all the stuff about interest rates and, and inflation and all of this that is going on. Well, if, if, if that is what we keep feeding our mind, that is very unsettling. And it's going to only stir up greater and greater anxiety within us. Or talk about politics. I mean, every time an election cycle comes around. They seem to be heating up more and more every time. And if you're the type that, that uh, uh, you still get a newspaper, you're one of those six people in Kansas City that gets a newspaper, or if you, you know, turn on and listen to the national news, one of the major networks, um, and, and you leave it on for an hour, two hours, three hours every day, it is going to have an impact on you. As your mind continues to be fed over and over and over and over, you know, that all that tension and it gives you a perspective of what the world is like. And that becomes how you see things and how you interpret things. You talk about the moral deterioration that is happening. I mean, we've been seeing things change at a rate right now that, you know, in my lifetime is, is unheard of. You know, and, and I mean, it's, it's so obvious, some of the biblical texts that talk about right being called wrong and wrong being called right, and we see all of that kind of stuff unfolding right in front of us, and where's it going to stop, or is it ever going to stop? You know, and if that's the kind of stuff we just keep thinking and focusing on that, man, that spells trouble. Or to say it another way, when the headlines start determining your frame of mind, there is a problem. And it's a problem that happens to many. Many get sucked into this. And you've got to be careful about this. 
Peter had taken his focus off of Jesus and had put it on his circumstances. And from that point, fear took over. You don't want to do that. I understand how easy it is for it to happen. Because like I said, I think it's part of human nature. But I believe there is a reason why over and over in the Bible, we are exhorted, implored on where our focus needs to be. Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. This is what we need to be focused on. Things above, not on earthly things. Hebrews chapter 3, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. There was a dynamic happening to those Hebrew Christians. The reason the book of Hebrews was written, and a big, a big part of the problem was they had taken Jesus out of their thoughts. They weren't focused on him. And so the writer of Hebrews is warning them. In fact, later in the book, you see it again. We must focus on Jesus, the source and goal of our faith. And this isn't just a New Testament sort of thing. Human nature has struggled with some of this stuff, you know, ever since way back when. And that's why you read the prophet Isaiah saying this. And this, by the way, is your memory verse this week. Isaiah says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Man, what a great verse. You know, because peace, that's the thing that we're missing. When we start focusing on the wind and the waves and, and, and all of the problems, adversity, the negative circumstances in our life, when that becomes the focus of our thoughts and the theme of our conversations, you're going to be in short supply of peace. And I will be too. But if our minds will be stayed on him, fixed on him, then he'll keep us in perfect peace. Faith involves focus. We need to learn not to take our eyes off Jesus. I mean, this perhaps is a big part of explaining why there are scriptures that say, do not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Because we need times like this. We need the reinforcement of our faith that comes from spending time in settings like this, around brothers and sisters in Christ, where we're, we're kind of removing all the distractions, competing thoughts, you know, from our mind, and we're rifling in on what truly matters most eternally. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That is part of the dynamic of Christian fellowship and spending time around other people with similar convictions of faith. When a person gradually becomes kind of hit and miss as far as doing stuff like this that we're doing, eventually that'll turn into once in a while. And once it becomes a once in a while sort of thing, eventually it'll evolve to hardly ever. And once... It's somewhat of a consistent pattern of hardly ever. Before you know it, it's going to become pretty much never. I mean, that's the trend. That's why we've got to be careful. 
you know, about things like, like what we're doing now. Focus matters. We need to develop the disciplines needed to reinforce our focus. We need to make sure we're making it a priority in our lives to keep getting our nose in this book. And yeah, this is one of those settings when we can do that as a group of believers. But you need, and I need, to be doing that in a personal way too. That's, that's why we're, we're always challenging, encouraging people, be reading through the Bible, spend time in the Bible, because you need to keep your focus where it needs to be. Otherwise, your focus will be anywhere but here and the things of God. We need times like what we're spending this morning. We need relationships that reinforce convictions of faith. Now, we need to develop relationships with people that are outside of Christ, that don't know Christ most definitely. We need to do that to be able to, to, to share the good news with people who don't know it, haven't embraced it. We need to do that, but we also need that stabilizing influence, that reinforcing influence of being around people that believe and, and have convictions of faith. And we need to allow that to reinforce our own. Corey Ten Boom is a name that some of you certainly recognize. Others of you may not really know exactly who this is. But Corey Ten Boom was a woman who spent time in the largest female concentration camp during World War II, Ravensbrück. And um, when World War II ended, you know, she, along with a number of others that hadn't died in these camps, uh, was freed. And, and, and her story, basically, is that for the next 33 years, she did not have a permanent home. For 33 years, she spent her time traveling and sharing her story, giving her testimony. And then eventually, when she was 85 years old, her supporters provided her with a nice house in California, a luxury she never thought she would ever experience in her life. And, and it was when she was 85 that, that she was able to enjoy that. One time a good friend of hers, Jimmy Coyer, was over to see her. And as he was leaving, he said this. He said, Corey, hasn't God been good to give you this beautiful place? And without missing a beat, Corey responded by saying, Jimmy... God was good when I was in Ravensbrook too. Where's your focus? If you focus on the circumstances and surroundings and adversity, then yeah, you're going to have a totally different opinion. But if your focus is on the Lord, it makes all the difference. I read this somewhere, and I thought it'd be a good thing to close this message with. Peace isn't found in the absence of the storm, but in the presence of Jesus. And that's the bottom line, you know, of this story and the thing that the disciples learned in somewhat of a difficult way, but it's something we need to learn as well. We're going to have our time of communion. I'm going to lead us in a prayer here in just a moment. Um, and after I've prayed, then I invite you to, 
to share in that time of communion. And if you didn't get a communion cup when you came in, there's some back there at the back table, and there's a table over on either side as well. You can help yourself uh, to those. But I want to encourage you to prayerfully ask the Lord to open your eyes to see what he sees in regards to where has your focus been lately? What are you focused on personally in your life this last week, this last couple of weeks, this last month? Where has your focus been? Just ask the Lord to open your eyes to see what he sees, to help make you aware and ask his spirit to help. That if that needs to be adjusted, ask his spirit to help moving forward in regards to your focus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us and your care and the fact that you're a God who sees And whatever it is that we might be struggling with, whatever we might be going through in our life, we're never alone in that because you're fully aware of that. Though there be 7 billion people on this planet, nothing escapes your notice. You're totally aware of every detail of our lives. And it's because you care. And we thank you for that. Lord, help us to be focused in ways that we need to be focused. It will cause us to live the life that will reflect well on you and bring you glory and be a part of our extended witness to the people that we rub shoulders with in our life. Thank you for showing us in a crystal clear way how much you really do care through the sending of Jesus to die on our behalf. Help us to never lose sight of that. It's in Christ's name I pray.